the sermon today um, will actually be Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 again. Uh, the sermon text for today will be that. But we'll read only Genesis 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, uh, because we have read that entire passage twice now over the past two weeks. And it will uh, be read in the course of the sermon. And so let us go now to the reading of God's most holy word, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. There we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Let us now go to the New Testament reading for today, which comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 1. The writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, lest they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not have spoken of another day later on. So then, the writer to the Hebrews says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive, he says, to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless uh, the preaching of his word and also our application of it to our lives today. This is now the third sermon devoted to the days of creation as described in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. The first two sermons uh, were big picture sermons. I was flying at 30,000 feet and making general observations about the text. You can feel when my sermons are big picture sermons, can't you? I, ho I hope that you can feel it. Uh, they're intended to be that way. Uh, foundations are being laid. We're making general observations, and those general observations will be built upon in the weeks to come. And if I were to briefly summarize the first sermon on Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, I would say that the process whereby God created the world reveals that God is God most high. He is Lord of all creation. The emphasis was that God created as He did and took time to create and, and did so in a process in order to reveal some things to us about Himself. And if I were briefly to summarize the second sermon, I would say that the created world itself reveals the glory of God Most High. In other words, the world was made in the beginning to be filled with the glory of God, and the world was made to declare the glory of God who made it. So not only did the process of creation reveal truth of who God is and His relationship to the world, but the world He actually made does itself uh, say something 
concerning the God who made it. We live in that world today, and indeed the world does still have that capacity to declare the glory of God Most High. We can look at the world and know something of the God who made it. Uh, This third sermon will also be a big picture sermon. Uh, We will fly together at 30,000 feet to make some general observations concerning the days of creation as they are recounted in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. And when all is said and done, we will again walk away from this text, seeing God as God most high, maker of heaven and earth, the only one worthy of our devotion and our praise. Uh, In this sermon, we will give special attention to what God did on each day of creation. And again, we will ask the question, why did God create in this way? Uh, We have already admitted that God could have created the world as we know it in an instant. He could have snapped His fingers, as as it were, and the world could have been brought into existence. He could have done it with one word. Uh, But Genesis 1 declares that God chose to create progressively. First, He created the realms of heaven and earth. Uh, The earthly realm, we are told, was at first without form and void, and it was cloaked in darkness. And then God formed the earth to be a place suitable for human habitation. This He did in six days' time. Uh, When we notice that God created progressively, we began to ask the question, why the process... Certainly God could have created in an instant. Why did He take time to create the world? And the answer given was that the process of creation revealed truth about the Creator and His relationship to His creation. But today, we are looking more closely at the process of creation. And as we consider the days of creation, we will ask not only why the process, but more specifically, why this process? Why did God choose to create in six days and to rest on the seventh, blessing the seventh day and setting apart The day is holy. Why did He make what He made in the order that He made these things? This on day one, and that on day two, and this on day three, and that on day four, so on and so forth. Again, the general answer to the question, why this process, is that the process of creation was revelatory. God was saying something when He created the world in this way. God was making a statement, as it were. But today, I do intend to be more specific than I've been in the previous sermons. Uh, But first I want to remind you of something. Uh, Remember that the name used for God throughout Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 is in the Hebrew the name Elohim. Uh, This is the more generic name for God. This is the name used for God when His supremacy is being emphasized. The God of Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 is the one true God, maker of heaven and earth. He is God Most High. Uh, This will become even more significant when we move to Genesis 2-4 and following, and we see that a different name for God is used in that passage. In Genesis 2-4 and following, God is called in the Hebrew Yahweh Elohim. This is not a different God, of course. It, It is the same God. There is only one God. But the change in name indicates a change in focus or emphasis. In Genesis 2-4 and following, it will be God, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, who is in view. Uh, therefore, uh, we see in 2.4 this view of God being emphasized. It is God drawing near to man and entering into covenant with him. Uh, Elohim, God most high, maker of heaven and earth, is also Yahweh Elohim, the relational covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. But the point is this, we must keep things in their proper place. We are still in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, where Elohim is being held before us as God Most High, 
the maker of heaven and earth. He is the supreme one. He is the creator of heaven and earth. All of his creation, therefore, owes to him devotion and praise by virtue of their existence. And so if you are alive and breathing today, you must know that the Bible begins with this emphasis. If you are alive and breathing today, you are in a relationship with God. It is a, it is a fact that you cannot avoid. Uh, this is even true if you deny His existence. Even if you deny His existence, you are still His creation and He is your Creator according to Holy Scripture. Your opinion of Him does not alter this reality. Elohim is supreme over you. Therefore, you owe to Him obedience and praise. He is your Maker. Not only does the name Elohim communicate that God is God Most High, here in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, so too does the narrative, so too does the story that is told. Notice that God made all things seen and unseen, there is God and there is His creation. Nothing else exists to compete with God. He is supreme. Notice that when God created, He did so by first creating realms or territories. And then He filled those realms with rulers who were to do His bidding. Something is being established here by this pattern that we will consider carefully here. God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void. He began to form and fashion the world. But He did it in such a way so as to first of all create realms or territories, and then he placed rulers in those realms who were to do his bidding. They, were to, they existed to serve God Most High. These rulers were to function as vassal kings or under lords in the place that God had placed them. They were not supreme, but they were to fulfill their function in subordination to God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. In ancient times... When a king would conquer another king, a treaty would be made between the kings. In these treaties, the conquering and supreme king, the victorious king, would tell of the victory that he had won. This would be stated in these treaties. He would communicate what was now expected of the conquering king, uh, who was taking the position of vassal king or underlord now. And then sanctions would be communicated. Should the vassal king rebel against the supreme king, here would be the consequences of it. Uh, this king, the one conquered, would live as a king. He would have dominion over a territory, but his dominion and his kingship was not supreme. He would serve under the king who had conquered him. And something similar is being communicated in creation. The Lord Most High accomplished His creative work, he called realms into existence. Afterward, he filled those realms with rulers. And as we will see, man is the pinnacle of creation. He was given dominion over all creation. But he was to exercise his dominion in perpetual submission to and obedience to God Most High. Man was indeed made to rule as king, but not as supreme king. He was made to live as a vassal king, who would live in perpetual submission to and in service of the King of Kings and the Lord of lords. The covenant made between God and man will not be described to us until Genesis chapter 2. There, the sanctions of the covenant are communicated. If King Adam rebels against the king of kings, he will experience what? He will experience death. Uh, these things we will consider in greater detail when we come to them in the text. But today, I want for you to recognize that God created as He did 
in these six days and rested on the seventh in order to establish this relationship between himself and his creation. He is God most high. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Whatever dominion man has, therefore, it is not absolute and supreme, but it is to be exercised in perpetual submission to his creator. This is how the story of the Bible begins. It's very foundational, isn't it? It's important for us to know. As we consider the days of creation, please recognize that God Most High first made realms, and then He filled those realms with rulers who were to function as vassal kings. Let's first of all consider the realms that God created. On day one, God created light and separated light from darkness. He made day and He made night. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Some have wondered if we should take the days of creation as ordinary 24-hour days, or if each of these days might be instead uh, representative of ages or eons. Have you, have you heard of this view before? It's typically called the day-age view. Again, uh, there is a strong push, I think, by modern science uh, to view the earth as very, very old. And perhaps if we can see these days as representing eons, then we can solve the so-called problem uh, that science presents. I don't think there's a problem, actually, uh, even though we feel the pressure of it. I'm not going to bore you with the exegetical details, but I will say that there is no reason at all to think that the days of creation are anything other than ordinary 24-hour days. Uh, This is my view. Um, Yes, it is true that the word day, which is in the Hebrew yom, can be used to refer to a period of time. It can be used in that way. The word yom can be used to refer to a period of time. In fact, the word yom is certainly used in that way in Genesis 2.4 where we read, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Do you hear it there? The word day is used in the singular, yom, but it's being used to refer to the whole process of creation that has just been communicated to us in Genesis 1.1 through 2.3. So there, the day yom is being used to refer to a period of time. There are many reasons to take the days of creation of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 as referring to ordinary days, though. One, the word yom is ordinarily used to describe an ordinary day. That is how it is typically used. If it is being used in an unusual way, in reference to a period of time, then the context will make it clear. Two, the repeated phrase that appears throughout Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, evening and morning, which is found at each of the end of each of the days of creation, uh, with the exception of the seventh day, this itself is significant, shows that these are to be taken as ordinary days. They are days that begin with evening and conclude with morning. Uh, clearly an ordinary day is in view here. Three, and I think this is most telling, when later scriptures look back upon the days of creation, they speak of the days as if they were ordinary days. And here is the most helpful principle of interpretation that I can give you. Allow the rest of scripture to help you interpret any given scripture text. And what I am saying is that when scripture 
later scriptures, scriptures that come after Genesis 1.1, look back upon the creation event and speak of it, they treat it as if it, these were ordinary days. Indeed, as we will see, the way in which God created serves as a pattern for us. Because God created in six days and rested on the seventh, we too are to live according to that pattern. We are to work six days and rest from our labor and worship on one. So we have this pattern, six and one, six and one. Uh, This is how our week uh, was formed. It was established by God at the beginning. This pattern we are to follow until when? Uh, The answer is that we are to follow this pattern until the consummation, until Christ returns. Uh, More on this later. You can almost feel a sermon series on the Christian Sabbath brewing and developing. Can't you feel it? It's coming. More arguments could be given uh, than this uh, for the days of creation uh, being ordinary days. And E.J. Young, in his book, Studies in Genesis 1, makes some rather detailed exegetical arguments. I think they're very good, and if you're curious about this, you can dig deeper and find good information there. Uh, But these exegetical arguments really are not well suited for a sermon. Um, Some have noticed, though, that the sun and moon and stars are not created until day four. There's a reason for this. We'll talk about that in a moment. But noticing this, some have wondered then how days one through three could be considered ordinary 24-hour days, given that it is by the rising and setting of the sun that we tell time. First of all, I do want you to notice that it is not we who are tracking time in the days of creation, but God. Man is not brought into existence until day six, and God is able to keep track of time without the sun. Wouldn't you want to admit that? Uh, He's able to do so without the use of the sun. And secondly, notice that the sun is really not needed to track seconds, minutes, and hours. All that is needed is matter and movement. Remember that Genesis 1, 1 through 2 informed us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, it was dark. There is no reason to think that the globe was not at that time spinning on its, on its axis, which is, in fact, how a day is measured. It is not the rising of the sun, but the rotation of the earth, which makes a day a day. Uh, your watches and your phones track time without any consideration given to the sun, but they rely instead upon the movement of some material. And so, I think we are to take these days as ordinary days. Um, ordinary, as in... 24-hour days. Of course, these days were all a bit unusual, uh, given what God did on them. But what was accomplished on the first day? The answer is that the invisible heavenly realm was made on the first day. So too was the material world. This was communicated in verse 1. The material world, remember, was at first without form, void, and dark. And the first act of God's formative creation was the calling of light into existence. I'm saying all of this happened on the first day. The creation of light, in my opinion, did not happen at the beginning of day one, but in the middle of it. Uh, The first day, remember, began cloaked in darkness then, didn't it? The first day began cloaked in darkness. The first morning dawned when God said, let there be light. And I'll have you notice that the pattern throughout Genesis 1 is not morning and evening, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day, but rather evening and morning. 
for the Jews, a, a new day began not with the rising of the sun and the breaking in of light, but with the setting of the sun in darkness. And so for the Jewish people, uh, the day, each day, begins with darkness, and then light breaks in. And in fact, the same is true for us in a little bit of a different way. When do our days begin? In the middle of the night, and then morning dawns. This is a theme, an image that runs throughout Scripture, in fact. And so this is my view. When did day one begin? With the act of absolute creation out of nothing. The heavens and the earth were brought into existence, and there is darkness. Day one began with that, and then God called light into existence, the first morning, the first dawn. Let there be light, and there was light, and there was evening, and the morning, the first day. And so in this way, God created the realms of day and night by separating the light from the darkness. We're going to move a little bit more quickly now. On day two, God created the realms of the sky above and the oceans below as he separated the waters from the waters. Look at verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And so notice three th- that, that three things are in fact called heaven in Genesis 1. Not just two, but three things. What are they? The invisible spiritual realm is called heaven in 1.1. Outer space, as we call it, is called heaven in 1.15. We'll come to that in a bit. And also the sky where the birds fly is called heaven here in 1.8. And so according to the scriptures, there are three heavens, aren't there? There are three heavens. And this is why Paul wrote as he did to the Corinthians, saying, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Which heaven is he referring to here? Was he caught up into the sky where the birds fly? Was he taken to outer space? No, he is saying, I saw a heavenly vision. I saw a heavenly vision of the spiritual and invisible realm. He calls that heaven the third heaven, heaven, and he did not make it up himself, but it's taken from right here in Genesis 1, where we have three uses of the word heaven uh, in one passage. On day two, God created the realms of sky above, the first heaven, and the oceans below when he separated the waters of the sky from the waters on the earth. On day three, God created the realm of dry land, And he also filled that realm with vegetation in preparation for the creatures that would soon be placed there. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good, and God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And so by the end of day three... These realms had been created by God. Light had been separated from darkness, day from night. The sky above and the oceans beneath had been formed as the waters above and the waters below were separated or divided. And also the dry land had been formed and it had been given the power 
to bring forth vegetation which would have been necessary for sustaining the life that would be placed in that realm. Next, God created rulers or creature kings to have dominion over each of these realms. Notice that on day four, God created the luminaries, that is, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Look at verse 14. And as you listen to this text, pay attention to the, to the language of, of ruler here. Pay attention to the language of dominion. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. These are set um, in, in the heavenly places there in, in the second heaven. Uh, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And what is their job? To separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day. Here is a reference to the sun. And the lesser light to rule the night. Here is a reference to the moon. And also the stars. And God set them in the expanse, in that realm of the heavens, to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. So I do want for you to notice the word rule. The sun, moon, and stars were created on day four to rule over the realms created on day one, namely the realms of light and darkness, day and night, that God called into existence. The sun, the moon, the stars are rulers of sorts. They are, they are a kind of creature king. They are to be faithful to the God who made them to fulfill their God-given task or function. And this they do very well. On day five, God filled the waters below and the sky above with creature kings. Verse 20, And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So notice the word rule is not found here in verses 20 through 23, but it is implied that these creatures are to exercise a kind of dominion over the realms which God commands them. Uh, God placed them when he commands them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the realms to which they have been assigned. And so you're seeing this pattern in creation, aren't you? That God first creates realms and then corresponding to those realms, he places these creature kings or rulers in their place. Indeed, it is true that birds, they, they rule the sky, don't they? And the fish, they rule the waters. Um, this is the pattern that, that God is showing forth in creation. There have been some who, noticing this pattern that is here being displayed before you, say, well, it is only literary it's only a literary pattern. Uh, it's not to be taken literal. Instead, God did, in fact, snap his fingers and create. I think it is far better to see that God, though he did not have to create in this way, he did create in this way, so that he might truthfully say that he created in this way, and thus communicate something to us, namely his supremacy over all creation, and the fact that all things are indeed made for his glory. We are to serve as creature kings in perpetual subordination to the God who made us. On day six, God filled the dry land with creature kings. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, 
livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. In verse 26, we finally read of the creation of man. Verse 26, put your eyes there if you can. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So notice two things, brothers and sisters. First, man is unique in that he alone is said to be made in the image and likeness of God. This we will consider in much greater detail in the weeks to come. Secondly, notice that man is supreme over all creation. Man is given dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I think this is why the language of ruling was not directly applied to the fish and the birds and the land animals, by the way. They do have a kind of dominion, and so it is right for us to say, for example, that the birds rule the air and that the tiger is king of the jungle. But it is man who was in the beginning crowned by God as king of the earth. Do you see it? He is to have dominion. Do you hear the kingly language being used there? How God is calling man to rule over this realm that he has placed him in. The man was created by God to function as a vassal king or under lord on earth. This is made clear in the narrative that follows. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him Male and female, he created them. Now listen to the kingly language of verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. So it is clear that man was created to function as a king in this earthly realm. His task from the beginning was to fill the earth. He was to subdue it and to have dominion over it. This he was to do not independent from God who made him, but in perpetual subordination to him. He was to rule as king, but more specifically, he was a king under the authority of the king of kings and lord of lords. Adam's task was to fill the earth and to expand not his own kingdom, but the kingdom of God who had created him, who had prepared this place for him, and who had blessed him for this task. The expansion of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth was the goal from the beginning. So much more could be said about this, and in fact, much more will be said about it in the weeks to come. But for now, I want you to see that God first created realms, and afterwards He filled those realms with creature kings, and commissioned them to fill those realms, and to exercise dominion within them. Furthermore, if we consider what God made and the order in which He made it, we see a progression from the more basic and lower forms of life to the more complex and higher forms of life, with man being the pinnacle or apex of God's creative activities. Man, being made in the image of God, was blessed by God and given dominion over all the earth as God's vassal king. Man was to serve as an underlord to the God who made him. 
Now let us consider very briefly day seven of creation. We will return to this text in the future and we'll engage in more prolonged study of the Christian Sabbath. Uh, But for now, would you notice the importance of the seventh day? Notice the importance on the seventh of the seventh day. On it, God, having created the invisible heavenly realm, and having finished the earthly realm, rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. God rested from his work of creation, not because he was tired, you understand that, right? But because he was finished. This is why he rested. Not because he was tired, but because he was finished with that work. Having made a temple for himself, his heavenly throne and his earthly footstool, he sat down, as it were. Why did he sit down? Not because he was tired, but because his temple was complete. He ceased from his work of creation, but he continued with his work of providence, that is, his ruling over the world that he had made. This is what kings do. After winning a great battle, they rest from war and go on with the ruling and reigning of the kingdom that they have earned. After building a palace, they sit down on the throne and they function as a king. After securing the kingdom, they rest from the process of securing it and begin the process of ruling and reigning. As king, And this is similar to what is described to us here in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. God, having finished his work of creation, ceased from his creative work and entered into rest. He took his seat on his heavenly throne. It is where he rules and reigns from even now. His newly created kingdom was to be advanced on earth. His newly created kingdom was to be advanced on earth. Does he reign in heaven now? Yes, he does. But his newly created kingdom was to be advanced on the earth. The earth was to be filled. And who was to do the advancing? Who was to accomplish it? Who was to carry it out? Adam was. Adam was to accomplish this task. He was to fill and subdue and exercise dominion over all the earth. He was to do so living in perpetual submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We will come to consider the Sabbath much more carefully in the future. But for now, please see that the Sabbath rest of the Creator, as described in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, functions and functioned even then as an invitation for Adam to be like his Maker. Are you paying attention to this, brothers and sisters? The Sabbath rest of the Creator. It, it, is, it is God who finished His work and sat down and, and rested from the work of creation. But that Sabbath rest of the Creator functions as an invitation for Adam to be like his Maker, working as a temple builder, and then upon final completion of the task assigned to him, entering the rest of God. It is a symbol of a state of creaturely existence to be entered into after the creature's faithful work. This is quoting Dr. Rich Barcelos in his book, Getting the Garden Right, page 112. What is he saying here? He's saying what many theologians have have said uh, for years and years, that God created in six days and sat down and rested on the seventh, not because he was tired, but because he had completed and finished his work of creation. And in doing so, he is not 
just resting himself, but he is inviting Adam now, this creature king that he had placed in this realm and had given a mandate. He's saying, you do the same thing now. You work. You create. You build. You expand the kingdom. You, You create and expand and promote the temple of God and the worship of God so that it fills all. And having accomplished that task, you will then enter into Sabbath rest, unending, perpetual rest, having accomplished your work. And as you go about this work, here is the pattern that is given to you. You are to work six days, and you are to rest and worship one. You are to work six days, and you are to rest and worship one. As I said, we will come to consider the Sabbath much more carefully in the future, but uh, please notice these things for now. God created in six days' time and entered into rest on the seventh day in order to reveal something and in order to establish a pattern for man to follow. Adam was to work six days and he was to rest and worship on the seventh in imitation of his Maker. This he was to do until his work was completed and once completed he would enjoy eternal Sabbath rest along with the God who made him. Notice that not only did God rest on the seventh day, but the text says that He blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Who did He do that for? Did He bless that day and make it holy for Himself? No, this He did not for Himself, but for the man and the woman whom He had created and for all their posterity. He made the seventh day a blessed day for them. He set the seventh day apart as distinct from all other days and holy for them. Mind you, the seventh day was not made holy in the sense that it was untainted from sin, for all the days of the week at the beginning were untainted from sin. That is not the meaning of holy here. But it was a day that was set apart as holy. It was made distinct from the other days of the week. And when did that happen, brothers and sisters? Did it happen for the first time under Moses? No, it happened in the Garden of Eden. At the beginning of time, because this pattern was calling man to do something, accomplish your work, and enter into rest. And as you go about your work, do it in this way. Work six days. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over it. Promote the worship of God amongst your posterity. Function, and we will come to this again, as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. Pass the test that is going to be given to you concerning the two trees. And having accomplished this work, enter into eternal Sabbath rest. The couple, Adam and Eve, were to follow the pattern established by God in creation. And following the pattern faithfully would mean that they would enjoy the unending Sabbath rest of God. You can feel what's coming, brothers and sisters. The case I will eventually make to you is we must keep the Sabbath as well. It was not a thing given only to Israel. Under Moses, it was given to Adam and Eve, and a Sabbath remains for us today. The Sabbath remains uh, for the people of God. Why does it remain? Because the thing that it symbolized has not been experienced fully. What did it symbolize at first, brothers and sisters? Eternal and complete Sabbath rest. We have tasted of it in Christ Jesus, but we do not have it in fullness Brothers and sisters, uh, we must take care in our application of this text to our lives today because the text does apply to us, doesn't it? Of course it does. But we do not live in Eden. We live east of Eden. For example, it would be very wrong for me to suggest that we are capable 
of entering into the Sabbath rest of God by fulfilling the task that was given to Adam at the beginning. Are you following with me? This text does apply to us, but because we are not in Eden, but live east of Eden, as it were, having been banished from that place long, long ago, we cannot enter into and take hold of the Sabbath rest of God in the same way that Adam was at first called to. That way of obtaining eternal rest was closed off to man in the moment that man fell from his state of innocency and into sin. Genesis chapters 2 and 3 will help us to understand that. But this text still must be applied. Three things must be considered here by way of application. One, we must see that this eternal Sabbath rest that was held out before Adam is still available to us today, but by God's grace. Adam didn't earn it. He failed very quickly. Not a single one of his children were born in Eden. Did you notice that? They're all born east of Eden. It says something about how quickly he failed in his task. I wonder if he even made it a week. But God, by His grace, has provided a Redeemer, Christ Jesus our Lord. He was faithful to keep the covenant made with Him. He earned Sabbath rest, and He has entered into it, having accomplished His work of recreation, He sat down at the Father's right hand. Notice Christ has taken a seat too, hasn't He? Just as the Father sat down and rest, so too has the Son. Having accomplished His work, He has sat down at the Father's right hand. And all who have faith in Him also enjoy this rest. We taste something of it in Christ. We have tasted of it. All who have faith in Christ will indeed enter into the fullness of that rest that He has earned when Christ returns and makes all things new. Then we will forever cease from our labors. Then we will cease from our struggle with sin. Then we will no longer be tormented by sorrow, sickness, and death. But we must trust in Christ. We cannot trust in ourselves. In the first Adam, there is no rest, but only continual toil now, struggling, and death. And we are all born into this world under the first Adam. But in the second Adam, who the New Testament calls Christ, Jesus our Lord, true rest is found. And we are only found in Him and under Him if we have faith in Him. We must believe upon Him and be found in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. Now that we have fallen into sin, and God has provided a Redeemer. Two, we must recognize that we were created by God in the beginning to live in subordination. Uh, not in insubordination, but in subordination to our Maker. And so at the very heart of sin is pride. At the very core of sin is the desire to be autonomous, to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, true and false. In our sin, we insist on going our own way. And oh, that we would truly submit to God and to His Word and live in subjection to Him. Oh, that we would truly live with God as King over us and with Christ truly as Lord. It is here that we will find Life abundant. Brothers and sisters, we must truly put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and we must receive with meekness the implanted Word of God, which is able to save our souls. We must come before God humbly and receive His Word and live according to it. We must humble ourselves before God. Indeed, God must do that work of humbling us so that we see our need for Him. Three, and lastly, let us serve the Lord faithfully. 
in the places that he has set us. It is true we are not in Eden, but the principle applies. Let us serve the Lord faithfully in the places that he has set us, living in perpetual obedience to our maker. And so I ask you this question, are you a husband? Then serve the Lord faithfully in your home according to God's word. Are you a wife? Then fulfill God's calling upon you by living according to his word. Are you a child? Obey God and show honor to your parents according to his word. Are you single? Then walk in purity day by day, trusting in the Lord always. Are you employed by someone? Then work faithfully to the glory of God, exercising dominion in the place that God has set you. Never for your own glory and according to your own ways, but according instead to God, his way, and to his glory alone. This is beautiful, brother and sisters, the things that we encounter here in Genesis chapter 1. So foundational. And I hope that you can feel this, that foundations are being laid and more specific things will be said in the future. Uh, but I've greatly enjoyed considering uh, Genesis 1.1 as we have together over and over again. Genesis 1.1 through 2.3. Uh, let us bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this text, which in some ways uh, it's, it's very simple. Uh, even children who are brought up in Christian homes are familiar with the story of creation. Uh, Lord, but may we see how, how rich it is too and how much meaning in, is contained within it, Lord. Um, I pray that we would consider these things deeply and see how they do indeed apply to our lives, Lord. Uh, we do confess to you, Lord, that by, by virtue of our existence, Lord, we owe you obedience and worship. You've created the world in such a way where this is made plain, Lord. How can we deny it, Lord? We deny it, of course, all the time according to our sinfulness. But open our eyes, soften our hearts, so that we would give glory to the God who made us. It is the glory that you so rightly deserve. Have mercy on us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. And all of God's people say, Amen.